Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, Davine Dial on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. Thank you for managing WPVMFM. We really appreciate it. Nave at JamesNave.com. That's my email. Would love to hear from you. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Project. If you would like to improve your writing, ImaginativeStorm.com is a good place to take a look. Today, I am on this interview with a friend of mine whom I've known for some time now. Her name is Maya Toll, and she's an author. She's a philosopher. She might even say occasionally she's a poet. She certainly is an activist, and she's interactive on many levels. And she's most especially an author these days because she has a new book coming out. And Maya just does many, many things. We did our first interview about four years ago. And it was really delightful. And she's back with us again. And I'm just really grateful that you showed up today, Maya. I appreciate it. And (laughs) I would like to start by asking you to just catch me up on what you're up to and where you're headed. And let's talk about all this stuff that you do. Yeah, it's been a while, James. It's really great to be back in conversation. I mean, it's been a long while because I think the first time we spoke, I had just put out my first book and now I'm on book number six. So it's probably been five years because I've done a book a year. Soon to come is uh, my first memoir called Letting Magic In. And this this is actually, you as a writer might relate to this. This is the book I've been trying to write since the beginning. Every other book was me teaching myself enough writing craft and enough storytelling craft to get to this book, which was a real challenge for me because it's it's narrative. And the things that I've written before have been more short form. I learned a lot in the writing of it, but I also learned a lot about myself and the kind of retracing my own steps through my own past, which is what memoir requires us to do. One of the the things that I found most fascinating, and I know you'll appreciate this, is how slippery memory is. I started this book thinking that I knew my own story, right? We all should, should know our own story. And in the writing of it, I went back through eight journals, eight big, fat, <laughs> full journals from a five-year time period. And I was surprised at how much memory had recrafted my own past. It's kind of like river stones, you know? I read in my journal these sharp, jagged bits, these very emotional recollections of the day that I just had or the week that I just had. And then I'd look at my current memory of the same thing, which was kind of worn smooth. It was more a pocket stone, something that I had turned into my own personal mythology. And so writing this book was fascinating because both things are truth, right? The original truth is the truth. And 
the story that you have woven that has supported your life in the years since is also the truth. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember? Oh, goodness. It must have been 20 years ago. Oprah interviewed a memoirist and she basically accused him of not speaking the truth that like the facts that he quote recalled were were different from what the facts were and it was you know as i got into this i had the ghost of that interview rising up i was like oh no what what's truth what's memory what's memoir am i allowed to um be in the current of what is real for me now, or do I have to excavate my own past to uh, figure out the objective truth of what happened then? And can we ever do that? Do you remember that interview? But I do remember it being reported on, and I'm not sure who the author was. This is an interesting proposition around what memory allows or disallows as we go back into our own personal history. I talk to a lot of people who write memoirs. I've written this 100 Days Poems After Cancer, a small little vignettes. And so I just jotted down what was going on in the day. So it was easy for me to write it because the memory was very fresh. Today, I saw a bluebird. Later, I walked down the road and looked at the garden. Okay. At the end of the 100 Days, it turned out to be a really interesting narrative. And yet when you go back 20 years or 30 years, the memory may not even be memory anymore. It's something else. Does it really even matter whether it's true or not if the essence of what you're trying to say has truth in it? Right. And what is actually more important? You know, when I was reading back through those journals of my 27-year-old self, my 28-year-old self, my 30-year-old self, there was a quality to my voice at that point. It was like the volume was turned up. Every emotion was a screaming 10. And how do you find the truth under those emotions if every emotion is screaming at a 10? You know, you're so wrapped in the moment and what you're feeling and what's coursing through your own body that you don't have any distance from it. Is that the truth? Or is the truth what remains after that heightened emotion has fallen away, has been eroded away by the years, and you have something that is left behind that's a, a paving stone in your own path and journey? I'm not sure which is the truth. Yeah, you mentioned the paving stone thinking about the river stones you mentioned earlier, the stone sits in the river and it's the true stone that's been there for who knows how long. And as the river erodes it, it becomes a different stone. It's not the same stone. And yet it is the stone that started out in a different form. So when you are working with these memories, what I think matters is you allow yourself to tell the truth of this moment mm. rather than this was what it was 20 years ago. This is the truth now. This is the essence of this memory that I am reporting to you in this paragraph. And this is the best I'll be able to deliver. And you deliver it with as much 
accuracy, as much emotionalism as possible. I do think the accuracy of the memory isn't as important as the sense of the emotional engagement that was happening around that memory. That makes good sense, right? That's what my editor chose too. You know, in early renditions of this, I was trying to recapture the voice of my 30-year-old self. And my editor said, this voice does not allow you to tap into any wisdom that you've gained from having lived through this and having lived beyond this. By writing as your 30-year-old self, you're stuck in the wisdom of that 30-year-old self. And we actually really want to know what you got now, not what you had then. But what was interesting was there was something very snappy about that younger voice from a writing point of view. So I started a novel. I've never written a novel. I've started a novel using that voice because I was having a really good time with it. You know, there's a brightness, a freshness, a snarkiness that's also been kind of worn down over time. Uh, so reconnecting with that writing voice that had a little more jag in it. My writing voice now is very lyrical and it was fun to step into this kind of voice that had more peaks and valleys. I'm working with that. I say on the side because the writing world puts you in little boxes and I am a quote nonfiction writer. So for me to be writing fiction is is considered a, a sideline. I don't know that anyone will ever see it but me, but I'm having fun with it. Well, fiction and nonfiction can be really quite close. A friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Slater, just wrote a book called Mad Jag, and it's a novel about these three fellows in the 70s who went down to southern Arizona and established what became the standard for the marijuana industry throughout the 70s and the 80s since Amelia, the first fellows to bring the marijuana to the market in the 70s. It's really a great read. And then when you go to his website, you realize it's not a novel at all. They actually did it. And there we are, you know, truth and fiction all blending together into, into one form. Going back to your novel, you say the title is Let Magic In. Is that it? So the memoir is Letting Magic In. Yeah. And we're we're on uh, probably audio only for listeners, but since you and I are actually looking at each other, I get to I can show you the the cover. Oh my gosh! Would you do <laughs> Would you do us a favor and and describe that cover for us? It's a beautiful. That's a hardback. Do you have a hardback? It's it's a hardback. Well it's done. Hardback. Well done. Beautiful. So, so, and who's your publisher? So it's a, a Hachette imprint called Running Press, mm -hmm. and they're. Um, they're out of Philadelphia. They did this book and they also did my book before this, which is called The Night School. And they do an absolutely stunning job. So this cover was done so that the jacket runs all the way across back to front. You know, if you take the jacket off, you can see it's actually one image all the way across. We went a little old school. You know, there's something a bit, I don't know, something a bit 70s about it to me. I think our modern our modern covers tend to be very um, monochromatic, right? Like 
a neutral background, a pop color, um, one image, title large. This instead is a collage image that runs across the entire jacket. And if you start on the back, it starts at the beginning of the book, which is my time in Brooklyn, New York. And then as you wrap around, you can see um, the Hudson River Valley and then Ireland, which is where I ended up eventually over the course of the book. The designer actually asked me for a profile image of myself. I, I went through tons of old images looking for a really strong profile, which was then kind of put into shadow form and laid over this landscape. And then on top of that, different wildlife and botanicals that come up in the book are collaged on top. So I got this book in the mail just a few days ago. I just have had the, the actual book for only a few days and it's incredibly striking. I am quite stunned with what they were able to put together. Really different from what you normally see on books these days. You have such a good feeling. You must be absolutely thrilled by that. Covers are a thing for authors. I'm sure you've talked to lots of authors and, you know, getting a good cover. It's like, whew, really, it happened. A good cover. Yeah. Design is really important. And to get somebody who understands design as well as art and to be able to put that together in a form that will appeal to the to the eyes of your readers, you know, that's something that requires a great deal of skill. So on that note of skill, you are launching this book at Malaprop's bookstore on June the 27th, which will be 2023. And it's coming up fairly soon. If it's possible, would you be willing to read a sample of your book right right here for us? I, I would love to do that. Um, let's see. I haven't, I, we didn't talk about this beforehand. So what I'm doing is I just randomly opened the book so Perfect. that we can just see where we are. And let me, let me kind of catch you up. I've opened to a chapter where my grandmother is in the hospital. She had uh, lung cancer that moved into some other parts of her body. She had just had surgery. And my mother and I were sitting with her in the hospital and had decided to go to lunch. And the scene starts when we return from lunch. When we returned, the door to my grandmother's room was closed. An emptiness seeped from the gap between the wood laminate and the floor, an exhale I recognized from Jan's house. Later, the nurse would tell us that sometimes a patient would wait for the family to leave before they let themselves die. My first careening thought was, if we had stayed, she would still be here. I'd never seen a dead person before. Now, back in the chair I'd sat in earlier, I stared at her hand wondering if I should touch it. I remembered writing a scathing essay about her in high school English class. She'd been visiting from Florida, washing dishes at the kitchen sink. I stopped to kiss her cheek as I left for school. She looked up from the suds, assessed my outfit and said in her cringeworthy Philadelphia accent, are those chandeliers hanging from your ears? I wrote a revenge essay. I got an A. Sitting next to her body, I flushed with shame. 
Resolutely, I reached for her hand, hesitating for half a heartbeat before skin touched skin. Hers was neither warm nor cold. There was no tension in her fingers. But then there hadn't been before we left for lunch either. How could I think of her as gone when I was sitting right next to her? Her monitors were silent, but I could hear the faint pings of other monitors in other rooms. The dust motes shimmering in the afternoon light seemed to bounce a little, like an inhale. I glanced at her heart monitor. It was turned off. Still, there was movement. I was sure. I could feel it in her hands. Mom? Mom, I called my mother back from her contemplation of the parking lot. Is she breathing? No, my mom said, squeezing my shoulder. That's you. That's your breath. Well done. Beautiful. <laughs> my first reading from this book. Well, congratulations. I'm happy to be the recipient <laughs> of the first reading, and I'm sure the listeners will be happy as well. Coming back to memory, that was a very universal story you just told. I had a similar experience when my mother left the world and moved on. And one of the things I like about good writing, it allows me to think I'm having the experience as much as you. And so I could see the room my mother was in. I could feel that 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 sense of her departure. When my mother left, she left. There was nothing there. She was gone. And so you remember that accurately, do you think? Is this one of an example of something that would have an accurate memory to it? So what was interesting in the process of doing this was I would read my old journal and it would give me enough physical prompts because even back then I was a writer. In my 20s, I wrote poetry and I actually helped the 92nd Street Y in New York City start their poetry in the schools program. So I was always recording details, not sure what I would do with them, but you know, my, my journal, even at that point was a writer's journal. So it was full of the small details that, that writers tend to notice, mm -hmm. tend to want to note down in case we need them later, which gave me enough of a touchstone. You know, if you had said to me before I picked up my journal, what do you remember from the day your grandmother died? I would not have had those those details in there. I had enough details in the journal to pull me back into the room. And from there, I could then, in my imagination, put myself back in that place and begin to piece back together the the various sensations. You know, I have a friend who's a memoirist. Um, her name's Steph Jagger. And I was concerned when I started writing this book because... I, I've always said that my memory is like a snail shell, that things disappear around the curve and they're they're just gone. I, I, you know, I hear other people talking about a memory from when they were 10 or when they were 16. And, and I just have so few. And a lot of times I think I have a memory and then I pull out one of my mom's photo albums. And what I realize is I don't actually have a memory. I have a photo that stuck in my mind. And then that photo somehow has become confused with a memory. Like I don't have any 
sensation within myself around that photo, but I have a scene that it's like exists as a snapshot in my brain. So I was very concerned when I started writing this book that I, I, that I didn't have enough memories to write this book. And Steph said to me, once you start writing, it's like you're opening the file cabinets and doors somewhere in the back recesses of your mind. And you'll find that you remember more than you think you did. And I, I found that to be true. I don't know that I could have gotten there without the journal entries. You know, the journal entries really pulled me into the memory enough that I was then able to keep going. Right. I know that the work that I do with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, we do a writing prompt called, I Don't Remember. And we ask people to think about a situation that's meaningful, like your grandmother passing. And we ask them to really visualize it. Or we ask somebody to visualize a place that they're most familiar with, like their living room or their kitchen or their study. And then we say, spend 10 minutes and write about what you don't know, what you don't remember. I don't remember the first time I walked through the door of my study. I don't remember what time it was. And the memories start emerging from the I don't remember, which is what you were describing. That's why I thought it'd be interesting to bring that up. Letting magic in. Magical story. Your grandmother dying while you've gone to lunch. How do you define magic and why are you asking it to come in? And the magic that you're asking to come in, you're letting in, does it have a relationship with the magic that's already inside of you? Yeah. So part of the reason that it was so important to me to tell this particular story as a narrative um, and not in the other nonfiction modes that I've you know been writing in in the past is because this story, this narrative is the time frame from which I went from living what I would consider a fairly mundane life, you know, a life where I considered magical thinking to be something to be avoided at all costs, <laughs> something that took you away from quote reality. And I, I didn't see any way that magic and reality could walk hand in hand. So I had this strange longing for what Catherine May would call enchantment, that sense of something beyond our everyday reality, something beyond what I call mundania. I also was not allowing that to bloom within me. So from a very young age, I read fantastical books. I'm actually fairly learning disabled and started reading late. And the only thing that drew me into reading was an author called Lloyd Alexander. And my camp counselor read us Taryn Wanderer, one of his books, when I was eight years old, nine maybe, and still not a reader at that point, which, you know, it's late to not be really reading. Um, but we didn't get through the book in the time that I was at overnight camp. And so in the car on the way home, I said, mom, we have to go to Barnes and Noble right away. I need to know what happens to Taryn and Henwen, the, the oracular pig in the book. 
And my mother gaped at me and was thrilled to get me to Barnes and Noble as quickly as possible. I ate through that book and then I ate through the rest of the series. And then it was The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis and on and on. I went, I probably didn't pick up a book that wasn't in the fantasy genre until high school lit. So there was this deep longing for a realm that didn't operate by the laws of our world. You know, I used to joke in college, I can't wait till someone disproves gravity. I want to have an anti-gravity party. I want the rules to break. I want the rules that govern our little universe to not hold us quite so tightly. And maybe some of it was the learning disability and trying so desperately to fit in. I didn't want to be the weirdo kid that only read fantasy novels. Sometimes I'd even tuck them inside something else <laughs> to look like I was reading something a bit more serious. But the truth is, you know, I had this deep longing within me and in my late 20s, it began to kind of crack the surface of me. It began to come through in ways that I I couldn't deny. And so this book, Letting Magic In, is the story of the magic beginning to crack me and to come through and to pervade my everyday reality until it got to the point where the mundane and the magical really we're walking side by side and are walking side by side in my everyday life. I felt like I couldn't be the only one. I couldn't be the only one who wanted life to have a little more sparkle and glitter. And yet at the same time was resisting letting that happen. And so I really wanted to walk people through the process and the story and the dark moments of it, you know, because like we're really talking about something that I considered a little bit insane. And so I was stepping close to some edges and I know other people have stepped there too. And I, I wanted to show people going through this process that you can dance along that knife edge and be a perfectly functioning part of society that you can step yourself back when you're going a little too far, that there are ways that you can step into the inner realms, because I really do believe that a lot of what we call magic is an inner realm. It's where it's where shamanistic travels go, right? It's that journey inside that somehow takes you outside. And there are tricks that you can learn to keep your worlds separate when you need to and allow them to merge when you're able to. But you have to kind of develop a little bit of control and it's not something that people talk about very much. And so this book, I hope, you know, it's funny because my other books are more clearly guidebooks. This book is narrative. And yet in many ways, I feel like for people who are willing to read between the lines, this is the book where I tell you all my secrets. This is the book where I tell you everything I've learned and how to hold both mundania and the magical realms in your heart simultaneously and slide back and forth between them literally without losing your mind. What would be an example in your life? You said you've walked to the edge, you've played between the two realms. 
an, an example in your life that you consider the edge, what, what would that be? And how yeah. does that work magically? And how do you allow the magical thinking to inform the, maybe the mundane, maybe that might be the wrong word. Maybe <laughs> the, the mundane might think, well, I'm not so mundane. I'm rather, rather happy with my little, little ordinariness. <laughs> So let me just start with the beginning of your question. In Letting Magic In, I, I talk about the beginnings of what might be considered hallucinations. That seeing things that are not in and of this world and feeling like I am seeing them with my eyes in this world, in this reality, right? Where the metaphor feels like it's become embodied and real. That's a, you know, that's a real edge. And for people who are doing work where you're exploring other types of consciousness, having the ability to, I think of it as shut the door between the types of consciousness to, to on purpose say, I am now going to step into the world and the realm of the metaphoric, of the archetypal, have my time there, and then come back and close the door so that the shadows stay on the far side, so that we're not bringing things back into our everyday reality, the things that you see out of the corner of your eye that you're kind of like, whoa, whoa, is that there? Is that not there? Whether Mundania considers itself mundane or not, I actually think our quote normal world is miraculous and that if we can go deep into the micro of it, into the details of it, there is such incredible, <laughs> incredible real life magic happening right under our noses daily. And what I'm really talking about in letting magic in is the shifts in consciousness that we can use to tap into our inner knowing, our inner fire, our inner wisdom, our inner magic, so that we can see the parts of ourselves that are just as magical as some of the things going on in the outer world, the natural world. And so there's this dance inside to outside, this stepping into the inner realms, stepping back out. There's a, a beautiful metaphor that that actually comes from the shamanism, from the Russian steppes and, and that area of the world. The idea that the shaman crosses the rainbow bridge, that the shaman moves from the mundane world to the other world, gathers wisdom, gathers teaching, gathers healing, and brings it back. You got to cross back over the rainbow bridge. And what I have found with a lot of people who are exploring mysticism, because that's really what this is, right? This is mysticism um, that I think our modern day mysticism is an amalgamum of all the different types of mysticism from many places around the world that have filtered down. We get little bits and pieces from different places. Sometimes we know where they come from. Sometimes we don't, but it's all become part of the stew of modern mysticism. And 
I, I see a lot of people who understand that you can cross over into other ways of thinking, other ways of seeing, other ways of being, but they forget to cross back and they get stuck in that other place while still living in a human body and trying to function in the human world. And this can range from folks who spend so much time with quote, their heads in the cloud that they can't like manage some of the logistics of everyday life all the way to folks who have gone over to the other realms for so long and in such depth that they really at this point need help coming back need help that's way beyond beyond me you know we're now in the realms of of psychology psychiatry and and helping people refine their footing so i think there's a range and when you're kind of just beginning the mystical path, it's very important to understand that this is a two-way journey. You go and you come back. The whole point is to come back. The whole point is to learn something, glean something, find the golden egg and bring it back. How do you learn to trust those impulses? You were describing going in, discovering things inside, traveling to the mystical realms. I've had some of those experiences. I imagine human beings are wired to experience those things. So often, though, I'll have something that's an impulse, something that says, yes, that small voice, but so loud you hear it all the time. And I outthink it. I go like, yeah, maybe, but gee whiz, I've had all this other experience and I know the practical thing must be this and I don't follow it. How does one learn to trust the currency of that awareness? That's mm, such a perfect question, James. And really what I go into in depth in the book, um, because in the beginning for me, I suddenly had an awareness of this thing called intuition or inner wisdom. And then every little voice that popped into my brain, oh, that's my, that's my intuition. That's my inner wisdom. And I had no ability to sift through what was just my brain talking to itself and what was something else, something deeper, something richer sparking. And I go into some stories in the book about times when I was 100% sure that I was following some deep inner wisdom. I had this and I was wrong, <laughs> so wrong, right? Because I was instead listening to my own brain just chattering away and making up stories. And so learning how to sift through those things. And what I have found for myself is my inner knowing is not a voice. And I think that sometimes the way that we talk about this becomes confusing. We call it a small inner voice or, you know, how can I hear the whispers? If it's coming to me in language, then 99.9% .9 of the time, that's my brain chattering away. That's my brain just going, when I have a deep inner knowing, first of all, it doesn't come in language. It doesn't come with rational understanding. It doesn't come with outcomes. When I hit something that's like, I will do, you know, 
if I think it's my inner voice and the inner voice is saying, okay, Maya, now you're going to do this and then that will happen. That is not my inner voice. That is my brain rationalizing. And my brain has gotten really good at, at like mimicking the wise woman voice. Hey, Maya, come on over. I got something for you. But I think the best way to describe how I know that something is coming from a deeper place is to just share something that, that happened quite recently. I'm going through a health issue. I have a form of vertigo that they tell me will eventually lead to deafness. You know, it's something that's on my mind and on my heart at all times. What am I going to do about this? How am I going to handle this? You know, I'm reading medical papers and exploring Ayurvedic treatments and TCM treatments and, you know, trying to pick up every rock and look under <laughs> every stone and try to figure out like, what can I do to, to shift the storyline? And in the midst of this, a friend of mine is a jeweler and she is quite amazing. She creates something that, you know, I can only call talismans. She learned at a school in New York that specializes in ancient methods of goldsmithing. So she uses the same methods that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Romans did. She mixes her own gold, like gold is not pure. So if she's using 22 carat gold, then to get to 22 carats or 18 carats, she's actually putting the other alloys, the copper and the silver in. So it's alchemy and every piece has a purpose and she is infusing the purpose into the pieces as she's working not to pull in a language of religion, because I know that that for some people brings up the childhood memories. I can only think of it as prayer, you know, what she's doing as she's making these pieces. So she's working with gold. Those of you who keep track of these things know gold is quite expensive right now. Um, but I always look when she releases new new pieces into the world because they're stunning and they all have a story and they all have a vibration she released a new grouping recently and I went to her website and there was a piece that grabbed my heart. I mean, it felt like something was squeezing me from the inside and my eyes filled with tears and I'm, I'm not much of a crier. And I kind of started hyperventilating a little bit looking at this piece. So I closed the computer screen and I walked away and I came back three hours later and I had the same reaction and then went into a, a sobbing jag. And it's really interesting because oftentimes when I cry, I, I, I don't have a lot of tears. Like, you know, my, my cheeks get damp, <laughs> pleasantly damp, but we are talking a snotty, messy, wet crying jag. And as I'm crying, I'm thinking, you know, this condition in my ears is caused by moisture. Um, I'm retaining moisture in my deep inner ear and moisture has to do with the, the sodium balance, the salt balance in your body. And here I am sobbing, getting rid of moisture and salt. My rational brain looked at the price tag on that particular necklace and said, you've got to be kidding, girlfriend. And so there I was, right, with this deep inner knowing. I'm sobbing. 
because of something that is woven into this piece and balancing that against my rational brain, looking at the bank account, looking at the price tag and saying, um, yeah, yeah, right. That's when you have those moments, that's when you can begin to see the difference. Right? Right. There you are going, this is rational brain. This is inner knowing. And then you have a choice. And you always have a choice. And I, I truly believe that, like, I got medicine from looking at that piece. My soul gained something from just visually sitting and staring at it in the computer screen. So, you know, if, if my rational brain was like, hey, Maya, this is impossible, then I might have said, hey, hey, inner wisdom, we, we, we just got a huge gift just from looking at that piece. But I was in a position to hit the buy button. And to me, part of that is completing a circle, completing a cycle, right? The woman who creates these pieces, her name is Savannah King. And she provided some deep soul medicine that I desperately needed. And so there's an exchange, there's a return for that. And my rational brain might not be able to understand how that all is going to wash out. But I've learned over time that my inner voice doesn't lead me wrong. That if I truly understand the difference between the chattering voices in my head and that thing that wells up in my body and grabs me, if I honor the thing that wells up in my body and grabs me, and I know that it's not going to lead me astray. And that truthfully, I mean, we're not talking about once a week having this type of reaction. This type of thing happens once a decade. And so when you honor the big once a decade, a million percent clear inner knowings, you strengthen the muscle within you that lets you have these moments. And, you know, by responding to the tsunamis that happen once a decade and honoring them, it gives permission to something within you to have more of those small everyday moments. Mm, get off the highway here, right? And, and remember, if I hear the words, get off the highway here in my head, I know that's not an intuition. If my eyes start tracking towards the exit, even though I'm nowhere near the exit that I actually wanted to get off on, then I get off. That's something different, right? When I'm suddenly like pulled that direction, then I get off. And of course I flip on the radio to see like, was there an accident? Like, why was I getting off? And, and what's amazing is how often I've been able to track the reason for the intuition. And you can take it too far. You know, for a while I was so deep into kind of like being opened to the world around me and understanding the, the energy flows that I would have these crazy dreams and I'd wake up and I'd say to my husband, China, it was a small plane. I think it crashed and he'd get on the internet and start researching. And sure enough, some small plane had crashed in China. I realized that I didn't have to take everything in right? I was kind of almost taking it too far. I called it being tuned to disaster radio. Like 
you can choose the volume at which you're hearing things. And for me, a comfortable volume is once a decade, I like a tsunami like the one I just had, right? I mean, it like, it washes you clean. It it just resets your sense that we are connected to other people and the world in ways we can't fathom. We can't put words to. Our rational brain will never understand. And I love that, right? But on the daily, I just want to know how to get off the highway so that I avoid a car accident. Maybe um, which phone call I should just let go to voicemail because I really don't want to talk to that person. I'm good with like those kind of minor knowings. I don't need to kind of tune into every plane crash and train crash. So after you step into that intuitive space, you know, then you can start playing with the, the volume on it. Have a miracle every decade and some small magics in between. <laughs> well, Maya, you couldn't have given us a better description of how that, that works. And I do love the idea that you mentioned prayer. We're coming up onto the top of our hour, so we don't have too much time to talk about that. But I'd like it if you could spend a minute or two just giving a slight reflection on how prayer fits into the magical realms if you would, please. And then we'll close out by mentioning your event at Malaprops and say goodbye. Yeah. So I love that you picked up that piece, James. One of the first chapters I wrote, which is a later chapter in Letting Magic In, was about the moment when I reclaimed the word prayer for myself. Because growing up, it was something rabbis did. Right. It was something my father did over the bread on Friday night. And it was always in a foreign language and I didn't understand it and it wasn't mine. And so finding a way to work with prayer, to send energy out into the world and receive energy back in a reciprocal way was a tremendous revelation for me. And something that I continue to work with till this day, I feel like prayer is simply sending your energy out into the world, receiving the energy back. And for me, it, it is often the energy of love or gratitude that sending out the overwhelming goodness I'm in, in that moment, and then being open to receiving something back. For those of you who are curious, you can read about my experience of, of finding this rhythm with a rose bush <laughs> in Ireland. Thank you for those comments about prayer. I appreciate that. If you would tell us quickly, again, remind us about Malaprops and how we can connect with this new book you have. Yeah. So the Malaprops event is um, the 27th of June at 6 p.m. They are taking reservations. So hop over to their website. And if you can't get into the in-store event, there's an online portion as well. My website is my name, which is M-A-I-A-T-O-L-L.com. And you can get more information on previous books and, um, and on letting magic in. And there's actually a very sweet tote bag that my publisher made for people who pre-order. Pre-ordering is just so important for a book's success that they wanted to incentivize people and they created this fabulous tote that I've been dragging over to mother 
for those of you who are who are, who are here in Asheville, it's become my sourdough bread bag <laughs> that I uh, carry over to Mother and fill up once a week. And that's available for, for pre-orders as well. And the pre-orders happen by way of your website or by way of Amazon, or how does that work? You can pre-order from anywhere. In fact, a pre-order from Malaprops, and I will sign it for you. Um, and I, you know, love supporting our local stores. But if you go to my website, you'll see how to link to my publisher's, you know, pre-order page. And then you just um, put in your uh, receipt information and sometime over the summer, a tote bag will appear in your mailbox. Well, I can't wait to get that tote bag. <laughs> I can probably arrange a tote bag for you, James. Well, thank you so much for that. <laughs> and thank you ever so much for taking this thoughtful time with us to really move us through the work that you've, you're doing. It's beautiful, beautiful storytelling, beautiful writing. Thank you for reading just a little bit. And I look forward to, I hope I get a ticket from Alaprops. I'll, I'll give it a shot and see. So thanks, Maya. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, James. It is always absolutely delightful speaking with you. I, I really appreciate your thoughtfulness. Back to you as well. <laughs> and there you go, my friends. Thus ends our conversation with Maya Toll. Before we close out, I'd like to remind you I am doing a book launch of my new book, 100 Days, A Poetic Memoir After Cancer, at the Story Parlor, Sunday, June the 25th. If you're listening to this in Asheville, North Carolina, the Story Parlor is in West Asheville. If you're listening to this elsewhere, well, just think of a reading in a small room with a very nice stage and 40 people, all of whom more or less overlap in one way or another in the Asheville community. You can find information about my book launch at jamesnave.com and also keep in mind that Maya Toll will be offering her book launch Tuesday, June 27th at Malaprops in downtown Asheville. That's at 6 p.m. You can go to the Malaprops uh, website and make your reservation to, to go to, to Maya's book launch. It's a hybrid book launch, Letting Magic In. And Maya's book launch is a bit of a hybrid because she's going to be launching her book, reading from it. She's also going to be in conversation with Nora Shalloway Carpenter, who's a young adult author here in Asheville. She has many notable books. So the two of them together have plenty to explore. And you're invited. All you have to do is go to the Malaprops website, which you can find online. Make a reservation and show up on Tuesday the 27th at 6 p.m. And before we go, I thought you might enjoy just a little historical uh, frame around Malaprop's Bookstore and the Story Parlor, which is in West Asheville. In the early 80s, there was a venue in Black Mountain, North Carolina called McDibbs. It was a listening room. And people gathered at McDibbs often, actually almost every night. It really wasn't a bar. McDibbs sold a couple of beers. Heineken was the most premium beer of the selection of five or six they had, and then sodas, of course, and some chips. People came to listen. And during that same time in the 80s, 
Malaprop's bookstore emerged in Asheville, along with some other small businesses that were just starting to get their footing in the Asheville area all those years ago. Now, the reason I bring up Malaprop's bookstore, the story parlor in McDibbs, and also mention Grey Eagle, which is in Asheville as well, it's a music hall, the, the vibe for listening started in the Asheville area at McDibbs. The bookstore vibe was there all along. Malaprops had a little cafe in the basement and people came and did open mics there and read their work. And I believe Laura Hope Gill was the one who started and ran the open mic there at Malaprops Cafe for a long time. But during that same time, McDibbs was thriving with music more than with spoken word, although there was some theater and some, some spoken word material presented in 1984. My creative collaborator at the time, Bob Falls, and I presented a, a two-hour spoken word show called Poetry Alive, and that was in August of 1984. So, McDibbs was the the seed for all of this. And now, all these years later, we have thriving venues throughout Asheville. And the story parlor feels a bit like what McDibbs felt like all those years ago. And of course, Malaprops continues with a cafe and with its readings, although at the time of the Malaprops early days, Malaprops had a smaller storefront just up the street, a few doors north from where it is now in the corner, a much larger store. And it was almost to Pack Memorial Library. So that's where the downstairs cafe was. So those were the early days. And now every, every day is an early day. Every day is an old day because it will move forward in our memories and then become the old days. So now in Asheville, there's a thriving scene. And when you come to downtown Asheville or in the area around Asheville, you'll find a lot of that, a lot of music, a lot of spoken word and that sort of thing going on. So if you have a chance to pop into any of the venues around Asheville, do so. I think you will be well rewarded. Oh, yes. And on Tuesday nights in Black Mountain, North Carolina, the White Horse has an open mic. I went down there last night and I practiced a little bit for my upcoming book launch. I'm trying to put some music into my poetry reading. Uh, I'll never be Leonard Cohen, but I will attempt to do something with my voice. So on that note, Thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to hear more of Walter's music, thank you. Devine Dial for managing WPVM-FM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. I would love to hear from you. I, I'll answer you back. What's your story? And also, I'd like to remind you that we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to develop your writing chops a bit more, 
you can always visit imaginativestorm.com and there you will find some some information on how you can make your writing better some some books some prompts some workshops that sort of thing it's one of my projects and my collaborators have agreed to sponsor this show so i'm glad to be part of that project i'm also glad to have the sponsorship as well so on that note once again, thanks ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really appreciate it. And hey, I hope you tune in again sometime soon. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. <laughs>